Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today's Tuesday, December 19th, day 74 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borsell Dan here with reporter Kanan Lidor and Arab affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. There is much speculation about renewed talks for another hostage release deal. Kanan will talk about the divided camps among the hostage families, and Luca will explain what is happening with some of the Palestinian prisoners who are set to return to high school in East Jerusalem next month after the release. After more than 10 weeks, what is happening with the rehoming of the internally displaced from the Gaza envelope in the north? We'll hear about new rocket shelters in an unrecognized Bedouin village and the cancellation of Christmas. All this and more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. As of this morning, the death toll in the Gaza ground operation has climbed to 131. One of those killed yesterday was a neighbor, 31-year-old Daniel Yaakov ben Harush. Our children were together in a small daycare last year, his first son, my seventh child. He was a hands-on father who attended all the little events and parties, the only father among the five babies. I will remember him smiling, hugging his son at their end-of-the-year party this summer. Kanan, you were at the rally last Saturday night in Tel Aviv, which occurred, of course, a day after the deadly accident that saw three hostages shot by the IDF in Gaza. You've now been to several of these rallies. So what was different in the mood and the tone this time? First of all, the last few rallies have were marked by the release of, uh, of, of some hostages, and they were a little bit more a little bit more upbeat than in the beginning now that feeling of hope has completely switched to a feeling of urgency because the the slaying of the three hostages really impresses upon many people the uh, the danger that the hostages are in especially as the uh, military operation rolls forward to the southern strip where they're presumed to be held, most of them at least. And so um, you're seeing much more outspoken rhetoric about what the government should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, you're hearing sentences like the continued um, fighting doesn't help us rescue the hostages. It endangers the hostages. It's killing the hostages, as Udi Gorin, a cousin of one of the hostages, said at the rally. 
at the same time, it's also generating uh, th- this feeling of urgency that manifests itself with chance of et kulam everyone right now, we want them all back right now, uh, is generating a backlash from people who don't agree with this whatever the price attitude. Uh, and that includes a group of parents and other relatives of hostages people like um, the uh, like Zvika Mor, like uh, Eliyahu Binman whose whose sons are right now presumed to be held hostages and are saying no we we actually don't want to release any more terrorists because we're weighing the price that Israeli society will pay in blood um, from the release of these terrorists which is not an unreasonable assumption uh, given what we um, what we know about past experience and the lives of these hostages. And for the first time on Saturday, the two camps faced off one another. And it's the first time because the other camp, the not at any price camp, um, they have been quite toned down. Um, they have been, they, they've imposed a sort of censorship. It's difficult for me as a reporter to uh, talk to them. I haven't been able to, to speak to the mother of uh, Avinatan, one of the hostages, uh, Ditsa, who just won't pick up my phone calls and because she feels that it, whatever she says kind of contradicts and increases the split in Israeli society, contradicts what the other side is saying. She doesn't want to contribute to that. So that attitude kind of gave way for the first time on Saturday because there was a rally of about 100 people uh, most of them with um, with um, combatants in the Gaza Strip, not hostages, who are uh, who, who just vocally opposed the deal, and they 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 gathered opposite the Kiryat military base, where the families of the hostages came to protest. Also, for the first time, perceived in action, there was a not the first. F- protest but they they actually set up a camp a small tent city in which they're staying right now until uh until until a ceasefire is reached basically uh and so you're seeing this return in the dynamic in the interaction between the two groups you're seeing a return of the sort of sites that that we that that we know from the protests from before the war recriminations uh, mutual accusations of weakening society uh of um doing this at the expense of the fighters in gaza and actually a, a pretty pretty nasty exchange Right, you mentioned the name Tzvika Mor, and I know from uh, other reports that uh, he's a person who says, for example, my son is fighting on the front lines in Gaza just like the soldiers. He just happens to be a hostage, and this is his contribution to the war effort. And you talked about how these voices have been sidelined in a way, or muted at least, and one would think that's possible because the media in general more is along the lines of the hostage families who are pushing for the deal along the lines of what you were just saying, the split in Israeli society. Do you feel like these voices, however, of not at any price are going to become more amplified as time goes on? That really depends on whether they themselves decide to uh, to get to get in front of this issue. Because yes, there's a reluctance, there's certainly a preference for or by the media, but there's actually actually also the issue of their own reluctance. And until we'll start seeing these people vocally advocate their positions, it's very it's inevitable that uh, the other voice is going to become more uh, predominant, especially what we're seeing when we're seeing such terrible 
prices paid in, in, um, in human lives. Luca, in the hostage release deal in November, some 20 East Jerusalem residents of school age were set free, and they're slated to rejoin the city's education system on January 10th, after the Christmas holidays. So what are you hearing on both sides of this issue as well? So exactly, as you said, there's uh, 20 um, East Jerusalem teenagers who are slated to return to school. And some people in the municipality are very worried that um, um, this could have negative consequences on the population of, of uh, teenagers in uh, East Jerusalem who may be exposed to their bad influence. Now, uh, they're viewed as heroes and they were freed by Hamas. Um, so the municipality has been holding talks both with the parents of these children and with uh, psychologists and uh education and pedagogical experts uh, to see whether uh, each one of them, each case individually, should return to the same school that they used to attend, to another one, or they should not return to school at all. I've spoken with a deputy Jerusalem mayor, uh, Fleur Hassan Nahum, who says that uh, in a lot of these schools, um, children are actually taught to hate um, Israel uh, because uh, Israel has no supervision over their school curriculum, uh, they follow the Palestinian Authority curriculum. Uh, so this is something to keep in mind. Can you give us some indication of why these children were arrested to begin with? It's a good question. Uh, none of them was actually, as we know, none of the 240 Palestinian prisoners that were released uh, had blood on their hands. So none of them was uh, guilty of homicide. It's mostly attempted attacks against uh, probably Israeli soldiers or settlers or throwing stones, things like, things like that. Arya King, who was a member of the Jerusalem City Council, said that uh, they should uh, build schools inside police stations or at the offer prison so that the children can attend school there. Okay, that's a bit of an extremist approach, <laughs> one would think. All right, Kanan, it's been over 10 weeks and most of the internally displaced are still in hotels and temporary housing. Uh, numbers are a bit uh, hard to get a handle on, but definitely over 100,000 is what I'm understanding. And you've been looking into this. Are we going to see any kind of a change on the horizon soon in terms of where these Gaza envelope and, and northern internally displaced are going to be setting up temporary lives? Well, change is already occurring. There's movement in that uh, regard. For example, just earlier this week, most of the members of the Re'im kibbutz, very near the uh, the uh, Gaza Strip border, moved into an apartment building in Tel Aviv, southern Tel Aviv, actually. And um, the plan is, a plan reached <clears throat> with the courtesy of um, contractors and some flexibility on the part of the state and the kibbutzim themselves. The plan is to set up kibbutzim in apartment buildings. Some of these kibbutzim, it's not as crazy as it sounds, some of the kibbutzim are pretty small, uh, you know, 300, 400 people. That's roughly the population of a large housing complex. And some of them are standing empty. There was a, a huge drive by the uh, Minhelet Ezol Tkuma, the administration of the Tkuma region, to, um, to ready those structures and we're already seeing the first kibbutzim move in there it's not for everyone some of the kibbutzim and the moshavim really don't want to move to the city partly because that's where they came from and partly because they're afraid that they have you know the concern they have teenaged children and <laughs> You know, how do you get them to come back to the farm once they've seen Paris, as the saying goes? You know, it's, it's, all, it's all things that are taking into account. And so some 
some of the evacuees are finding their own solutions within other kibbutzim and some are just remaining in hotels for example Beri the residents of Beri are right now still undecided and these decisions are taken by votes sometimes multiple votes when 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 the split is too is too even and um so so broadly speaking we're talking now about 47 communities according to the administration and of the 100,000 people that you mentioned only about 70,000 are recognized as evacuees uh, the others may have self-evacuated because they don't want to live in, in places like Netivot, which which gets a lot of rockets but isn't within the, the seven-kilometer uh, perimeter. And so they, their reality is, is of evacuated people, but their status is different. At least the administration is, is talking about 65,000 people. Uh, and most of them are in hotels. And those hotels uh are are basically have turned into the kibbutz itself and we're talking about kibbutz, uh, hotels in the dead in the dead sea and that's actually a more some kibbutzim find that's actually more conducive to a kibbutz environment than an apartment building in tel aviv because you know there's the, the there are institutions that they're familiar with there's the library that they set up in one of the rooms of the hotel there's the pool which we're familiar with from the kibbutz and you know there's actually some some lawns and some nature uh in their compound so that's more reminiscent and of course we talked about this there is one kibbutz that's uh, an important test case that's uh, that's kibbutz nachal uh, that moved into mishmar emek it's not comfortable it's not a convenient arrangement for either the hosts or the guests because um there are other complications attached to this for for example in mishmar emek there are families that were supposed this year to move into larger accommodations and uh, they by no means do they live in luxurious conditions in those kibbutzim especially not in mishmar emek which is very socialist old school and so uh, the arrival of nachal oz meant that they are not moving into their new accommodations for at least a year maybe more than that so there's a lot at play here from both the hosts um and the and the guests but the plan is the the timeline is for at least one year of these temporary solutions and in some cases up to three years really fascinating we'll go to a short break Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. 
And Rebecca, Luca, you were recently in the Negev, and until a couple of weeks ago, residents of the unrecognized Bedouin village Um al-Hiran, which is east of uh, Beersheba, they had no adequate protection against rocket fire from Gaza. Of course, on October 7th, we saw tragic deaths from rocket fire in similar Bedouin villages. So what has changed? That's right. So because this is uh, one of a few dozen unrecognized Bedouin villages in the Negev, they don't get um, shelters provided by the um, government. Um, they're also not covered by the Iron Dome, which is a pretty worrying situation because uh, the Iron Dome only intercepts rockets that are aimed at urban settlements that appear on maps. So two Israeli NGOs, Israel Aid and uh, Ajik, uh, decided to provide um, shelters, like communal shelters. Each one can host about 20 people. Uh, for a number of these villages, and they've just started delivering them in the past uh, few weeks. Um, again, these people have gotten used to not having protection, and also because um, their houses don't have to follow Israeli building regulations, a lot of them don't have a mamad, like uh, a safe room inside the house. Um, so it's hard to predict that the people will actually, 200 people, that's the population of this village, will actually run to the shelter whenever they hear a rocket alarm, but it's more of a symbolic... Uh, act, um, you know, to show people that uh, uh, civil society is stepping in where the government is not, uh, you know, taking necessary measures. Tell us a little more about the people there. Are they citizens of Israel? So these are all citizens of Israel. When the state of Israel was created in 48, um, they set up seven uh, recognized Bedouin towns where the Bedouin population was supposed to move. Um, but, you know, Bedouins are culturally very much attached to their land, and a lot of them refused to move. And so they remained in these um, villages. Initially, they were living in tents, then in shacks, and now they built um, like semi-permanent housing. Um, but they don't get uh, any infrastructure if they live in one of the unrecognized villages. Some of them have been recognized over the years, but about 35, 40 of them are still unrecognized. And so they don't get electricity, they're not connected to the water mains, um, they don't get sewage. Um, so um, they live in fairly precarious conditions, uh, and oftentimes their, ho their homes are demolished. Uh, basically, the Israeli government uh, just comes in with bulldozers and, you know, makes sure, in this case, they're in danger, um, they're at risk of uh, being evacuated because a Jewish settlement has been built next to them. Uh, so that's the situation. Um, a lot of them also complain that the um, health services are not catering to them. Uh, one man was saying that his daughter has been wetting her bed since the war started. She's uh, uh, under a lot of stress and is um, uh, asked for help from uh, health services. And uh, they say, no, we don't have social uh, workers in your area, so we don't know what to do. Okay, let's talk about the cancellation of Christmas. Obviously, it's a holiday that one can't cancel. We're talking about the celebrations, of course. And you were recently in Jerusalem's old city. What did you see there? Um, so, yeah, in uh, recent years, um, uh, a Christmas market was organized uh, by the New Gate. Uh, it's the heart of the Christian quarter. A very small one, but it became a tradition, and uh, locals loved it. People from all over Israel, uh, a lot of Russians would come to, to see this Christmas market. And religious authorities decided to cancel it this year, um, as well as uh, festivities anywhere in the Holy Land, both in Israel and the Palestinian territories. So that also applies to Bethlehem, which is a major pilgrimage destination, to Nazareth. Um, I think small uh, uh, celebrations are going to take place in, in Haifa, but that's about it. So I sat down with a man who's become an institution in uh, the Christian quarter. 
he dresses up as Santa and has actually created like a Santa cave inside his home where uh, for three hours a day, each day in December, he hosts uh, people, uh, children, visitors, and they can visit uh, Santa's house. And he said that he's not willing to give up on the Christmas spirit. Uh, he understands the reason why the celebrations were canceled, because a lot of people have been dying in Gaza. Uh, obviously, a lot of people were killed in Israel on October 7th as well. Uh, but he says people need this. People need to see, to feel the joy, especially children. They need to, you know, see the Christmas lights and get a taste of the Christmas spirit. So he said inside the walls of his home, he is still going to, you know, uh, perform this uh, tradition. Uh, I've also spoken with um, a representative from the tourism office in Nazareth, uh, who was saying that they're actually getting a lot of uh, Jewish uh, Israeli tourists from the south lately. Uh, they've also canceled festivities, celebrations there. Um, they still have inside churches, they have a religious uh, music festival. And she said a lot of uh, people from the from the south of Israel just want to come and feel something different, a change of atmosphere uh, from the constant rocket alarm. So they, even if there's no public celebrations, they'll still want to come to Nazareth for a couple of days and just see whatever decorations they still have out from last year and just, uh, yeah, feel something different. Okay, Luca, thank you for that. Can I just end with this? The cancellation of Christmas is obviously not going to take place in Europe, but in Europe, there's a cancellation of, well, anything Israel-related, including a handle oratorio, Israel in Egypt. Tell us about how you found this story. Uh, it was on Facebook announced that a very imp influential choir called the Rias Chamber Music Choir is canceling their Israel in Egypt uh, oratorio uh, because, well, it wasn't clear why, because of Gaza, because of Ukraine, because of war, but essentially this is part of a trend that we're seeing in, in Europe now, that anything with the word Israel in the, uh, in the title is being cancelled or postponed, possibly, although the organizers rarely admit this, because of fear of, um, of vandalism. We saw this in the Netherlands on uh, November 8th. There was um, a lecture about uh, Jacob Israel de Haan, uh, a Dutch anti-Zionist, by the way, poet. And this was just a lecture pre-planned for months in advance about his fascinating life. He was assassinated by Jewish extremists, by the way, in pre-state Israel. But then CREA, the U University of Amsterdam Association, announced that it was canceled for reasons unknown. And it later turned out that the actually the, the association of admirers of uh, Dehan canceled the event themselves because they probably feared vandalism and it just goes to show two things uh first of all that the extent of anti-israel animosity and the very real threat of violence that it constitutes and how european societies are apparently or at least parts of them ready to forego parts of their own heritage in order to avoid this this threat Really fascinating. Luca, Kanan, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other episode, please send an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>